Uh, this is Philippe Mo uh, speaking live with you guys. And maybe firewalls can't stop dragons, but if we team together, we can. Join the army. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 281 for July 18th, 2022. And today, we've got another great interview for you. I'll be talking to Philippe Mo, uh, who is the CEO of CrowdSec, who makes a really cool free and open source firewall. And we're so today, we're actually going to talk about kind of network security 101, some basics and things that we don't talk about maybe enough. We'll talk about that little box that sits between you and the internet. And it's it's doing a lot of really important things that we often take for granted, including acting as a firewall. It's also got this function called network address translation or NAT that actually is another kind of great security by obscurity thing that that hides or shields the devices in your home from potentially malicious or compromised devices out on the internet. Uh, because make, make no mistake that there is what we call like this internet background radiation. There are these devices out there that have either been compromised or have been co-opted or are being directed by malicious actors to automatically and constantly and tirelessly scan the internet looking for weaknesses, looking for devices that can be compromised. And so your router is basically all that stands between you and them. And it does a great job and a rather thankless job. So anyway, we're going to be talking about how all that works today, and then we're going to take it a step further. And the reason I'm talking today with the CEO of CrowdSec is they've got a kind of an interesting new twist on this, and that is, so if my router is kind of detecting these attacks or probes from the internet, wouldn't it be cool if my router could talk to your router and say, hey, uh, if you see this particular IP address come knocking, just ignore it. It's bad. Trust me. And what if we had hundreds, thousands tens of thousands, millions of routers all doing the same, it would sort of be this kind of global network neighborhood watch thing, right? Where if there's these IP addresses that are obviously trying to get up to bad things and enough of these routers who have been attacked or probed can say, hey, okay, this 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 guy's obviously up to no good. Let's Let's let everybody else know that if they see this IP address come around and try to make requests that they should absolutely ignore them. That has a lot of power. And I think it's really interesting. So anyway, we're gonna be talking about that today uh, with the CEO of CrowdSec. Before we do a couple quick notes, uh, I did mention a couple weeks ago about this Firefox total cookie protection thing and how it had failed this third party cookie test from Steve Gibson. And Steve Gibson's a, a really well known security guy. And he has this tool on his website, really cool too. He's got several actually. Uh, and this one, is there to kind of figure out whether or not you're properly blocking third-party cookies. And he had said that, well, this Firefox tool doesn't seem to be working because it's, it's failing my test. And I said at the time, you know, you know, one possibility is maybe the test isn't actually testing what we think it should be testing. Maybe the test is wrong. And I said, ah, but that's probably not the case. Funny thing, turns out it's the test. So, so uh, and Steve on his show actually said so, and I updated my blog entry that was about this. So anyway, if you're curious, you can go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and you can see an update there, but I basically just told you. Uh, his, his test basically wasn't testing for the thing that Firefox was blocking. So uh, as far as we know, the total cookie protection is doing what it's supposed to be doing, uh, and this test just wasn't able to validate that. 
In other news, DEF CON 30, the big uh, hacking conference, is just around the corner. It's just over three weeks away, which, you know, might not mean a lot to you guys. I will be going there. I will be reporting back from there, and we will definitely have a podcast or two about that because there's always some really interesting things that show up there. I am working hard on my presentation. I'll be giving a presentation in the Crypto and Privacy Village there. I don't know what my time slot is yet, but uh, I'm working on my presentation for that. I want to get that done well ahead of time. Don't want to be sweating that one. So I'll be trying to get that done in the next week or two. The Amulet of Entropy badges are selling well, as I knew they would, but there should be some left over if you're going to DEF CON. You can go to the HackerBox's booth, and I'm sure you can buy one there. But it'd be a lot more fun to buy it ahead of time, so you can wear it at the con. Just go to amuletofentropy.com for all the information, or go to hackerboxes.com directly if you know you just want to buy one. All right, so that's enough of that. Let's get to our interview with Philippe Mo. Philippe graduated as an IT security engineer in 1999, created and sold one cybersecurity company, and then his eternal crushes for cybersecurity led him to create CrowdSec in 2020. Welcome to the show, Philippe. Hey, Gary. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, start us off. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your company. How did you get into cybersecurity and what led you to start CrowdSec? Well, I, I was in, uh, in the cybersecurity game ever since 1999, and I can tell you these were golden years because we were doing pen testing. And uh, so penetration testing or AKA rat team pen test, basically the people come to you and they say, okay, here's a white card, do whatever you want, but breach my company mm. through every way possible, efficiently and so on, and tell us how you did it so that we can fix things, right? right? So it was very, very pragmatical. It was not about like having reports with like green or, or red uh, arrows and stuff. It was really about like, oh, you had a leaky Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or this authentication device didn't work or your your recruitment website was flowed like hell. And we could actually uh, bridge into the company and usually take the full control of the stuff uh, in a matter of, of days usually. So it was really fun. And as uh, as incredible as it can sound, the biggest the company are, uh, the easiest it is. Because, you know, they have such a surface that they were always forgetting something or right. something was leaky or, you know, the guys had always problems. So, uh, yeah, I did this for a decade or so before passing it to my, uh, to my right arm, uh, my CTO, and uh, then focused on business. And we did then for the next decade, we did high, host, uh, high security uh, hosting, which was about like, you know, not getting uh, uh, fractured and, uh, and uh, get your website pwned or defaced or stolen uh, credentials or, you know. So it was really about defense. So I switched from offense to defense and I'm now in the defender group. All right, so let's start with some some basic stuff, some fundamentals. I think a lot of people have probably heard the term firewall, but I'm guessing that most of them don't really know what one is. So right. what, the basics, what is a firewall and what problem is it trying to solve? And where might the average person come across one? Yeah, well, the firewall is a very old invention as such. It's like dates back from the 70s. It was invented by some people at Decalpha, if memory is correct. Mm. And it was all about like sorting what's inside from what outside, you know. So when you have a house, it's pretty easy to say, okay, I'm in my bedroom. I'm inside the house. And every other place around the garden is outside the house. And no one is supposed to get from the outside to the inside without an authorization, right? The firewall is exactly this. It's a wall that is a border in between your inside within your company and the outside, the internet, basically. So it's supposed to sort out who is allowed to get in and who is not. 
with a lot of limitation uh, that that are you know related to IP address. But I'm guessing we will touch base on this. So where would the average person like where in my house right now do I have a firewall? Yeah, likely. I mean, in your box, uh, in your setup box or AID, as we call it, uh, it's it's your box that really connects you to the fiber or to DSL, you know, to the internet. It has some sort of basic firewalling, right? It says this is inside, this is outside, and what's outside has to stay outside, except if inside is inviting it, basically, right? But the problem is with this logic is it's very static. Like, mm. say if we compare it to a nightclub, we we'll say we only let in people that have like sneakers and, and parked on, on the parking lot with a super classy uh, car and, uh, and have probably a lot of money in their pocket or in their 30s and so on and so forth. But that doesn't speak for the fact that they maybe had a training in Syria about bombing last year, you know? Okay, they still have the good car, they still have the sneakers, they still have the money, but they can be assholes. So how would you do that? How would you sort the thing not based on the look, of the thing, but based on the reputation of who they are really. And the problem with the firewall is this, you need it because you need to define, you need to draw a line in the sand on what's inside and what's outside, that's normal, but it's not enough. You mentioned one quick thing that I want to draw attention to, and that is not to let somebody not less invited. So I've often compared a firewall to a one-way data valve, uh, where when the requests are coming from inside going out, that's allowed, but uh, the reverse is not true. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, the diode paradox, you know, you know like in, in current or in electronic, we like to let the current flow from one pole to the other, but rarely would we want it to go backward, you know, because it would fry everything. So it, the firewall is exactly this. It's a diode. It's, it's supposed to let you get out of your house without any problem, get out from your network and go on the internet and grab resources you need to, uh, I know, surf, watch Netflix, buy stuff, whatever. But the thing is, Everything that is outside is not supposed to get in, except under special circumstances with proper credentials and proper authorization. Like, you know, when, like, when you open the door to the Amazon delivery guy, you do it on purpose and deciding that you should do it because there's a reason of doing it. But the Amazon delivery guy is not supposed to step into your garden without being invited. It's exactly what the firewall is supposed to feel as a role. Gotcha. Okay. So. We all take the firewall for granted because it's for it's it's in our routers almost surely. Almost all modern routers have it, as you as you said. But also, many computers have firewall software firewalls built built in them as well. Why might I want to use both? Yeah, actually, your Mackie, your PC, your laptop, your whatever Linux or BSD uh, you're using on a daily basis, it they all have they all have a firewall integrated. Uh, at the lowest level. It's a, it's a default function of any machine nowadays. So they do this, but they do this in a very simplistic way. Because the real problem behind it is you cannot possibly block the user from doing what he's willing to do, right? So uh, this is why we have a, a net that is with very wide uh, squares, you know. It doesn't filter harshly whatever is supposed to pass by in and out. It filters broadly. Right. If you compare this to uh, water, it would catch maybe the rocks, but barely the sand and clearly not the dust. Mm. And the problem is most of the attacks we have now are trying to trick you into getting from the inside to the outside by yourself. This is what we call phishing, for example. So phishing is something about like trying to trap people into thinking it's their bank account, it's their bank writing an email to them, or they can be trained in whatever for free, or they get poker chip or whatever, you know. 
they send you these kind of emails and hoping that you would click on the button and follow the link. And then what happens is this connection comes from the inside of the network, from you, from your wheel to the outside of the network. So it's allowed. I mean, right. as such, it doesn't have to be filtered. And by the way, a joke for the most uh, technical uh, people around the audience. Do you know how to uh, uh, fish a CISO? Right, CISO are, are cybersecurity officers in the company. They're the one, they're the guardian somehow. They are supposed to, to make sure that no one makes a mistake. So in the first place, they are not supposed to do mistakes themselves, right? But the, the best way to fish a CISO is to send them a, a new security product that they don't care about and let them click on the unsubscribe button, the unsubscribe link, because they are pissed off because it gets such a stuff every day. Yeah. So what will they yeah. do? They will click the unsubscribe button and you fish the CISO. <laughs> so yeah, phishing is a typical attack that goes from the outside to your inbox and from your action from the inside to the outside. And that's complicated to deal with. Another thing you can think about is if someone is uh, infected by a malware outside of your house or your network or your LAN or your company and brings a laptop or the device at the company, then the malware is already inside the device. So when it comes from getting from the inside to the outside, it's very lousily filtered not to provoke any false positive or any uh, user limitation, you know? Right. I've often heard that described as the, uh, I think it's like the M&M defense, like it's crunchy on the outside and soft on the inside where, you know, and this was a philosophy where the, the corporate network used to be really tight at the, at the very border. But then once you're inside, it was a free for all. And I think that's kind of another reason why we might want to have firewalls on our devices as well, because the, the call might be coming from inside the house, right? <laughs> right. As the yeah. classic thing goes, right? It's super old as an attack technique. Like, look, the uh, Trojan horse, I mean, the literal... Right horse, the horse made out of wood that was sent inside the walls of the city with soldiers inside. It's typical from a thinking that dates back from 2000 years ago already. I mean, we're just reinventing and reinventing the same thing again and again. But yeah, so each device should be able to defend itself because also it's not always uh, within the perimeter of security. You know, I'm thinking here with roaming devices like laptops, like mobile, they all, your mobile has a, a firewall as well. You know, so it's, it's really important that they are protected, even though it's not enough to, to grant a full safety for them. I want to ask one technical question because it comes up a lot when people are looking at their routers, and that is this notion of UPNP, universal plug and play. And explain to us what that is and what the security risks are around UPNP. Yeah, so UPNP comes from the same thinking that is like, let not piss off the user, right? So if they can't access the internet or if they can't play their favorite game because the firewall is doing its job, basically, what they will do, what they will tend to do is deactivate the firewall, which is even a worse situation, you know? Right. So in order to avoid that and make it a bit flexible, uh, a protocol was, was created to poke holes on the fly in the firewall. It's like if you want to see outside and you drill a hole in your wall just to be able to see outside. That That's okay. That's correct because mostly the wall is still intact, but it's still a hole. So say if someone can shoot through the hole, you take a headshot. It's not cool, right? So it has to be a sniper. Okay. It's hard to do, but the more holes you're poking into your firewalls, the more holes you're poking into your fences, the more you're likely to take a goal, right? And so right. this is, is made for this. It's to, to poke holes on the fly when it's needed, uh, like let's say you have a game and this game wants to connect outside uh, with our other friends, right? And they need to connect back to the inside of your network. 
then you are the one initiating the conversation and the firewall takes for granted that the people that are replying to you are implicitly accepted because you were the one speaking first. So the problem with security is when you do absolute security, people you know do not buy it they are upset and usually it breaks the business or their use case and they they tend to deactivate everything so upnp is a lesser evil one other aspect that comes with routers that actually has another kind of a side effect of being a security more like security by obscurity is something called network address translation and that's another function that is that's uh, kind of bound with the same thinking. Can you ex explain to us a little bit what NAT is and how it might play a role in protecting us? Yeah, so first of all, kudos to the guy that invented uh, the TCP IP protocol back in the days, you know, in the 70s, because they were actually thinking, okay, let's connect tens of thousands of machines together. That would be awesome. Yeah, that would be awesome. Let's take another beer. Okay, let's create a great protocol that would like, you know, overachieve this. Okay, let's do this. So the IP, the protocol IP, TCP IP comes from here, right? And the thing is, this stuff was so resilient, so well thought through that it held until 2022 and, and going on. So what was supposed to be tens of thousands of machines actually is 10 billions of machines. And the same protocol is empowering it. So, but there are some few loopholes, let's say. So since we don't have enough IP addresses for all of the devices, you know, it reminds me of this Microsoft quote from Bill Gates saying like 655 uh, or 64 kilobytes of RAM should be enough for everybody. Right. Well, buddy, <laughs> let's say it was right for two years, not more than that. So this stuff held through, but uh, we need now like tens of billions of devices to be online to potentially interact together over the internet. And we don't have tens of billions of addresses. We have something like 3.2 billion addresses in IPv4 the mostly uh, vastly used format nowadays. So since we cannot have like one per device, what we do is we use one IP for several devices. This is what we call NAT, Network Address Translation. So say your phone, for example, is a great example. So your phone is connected to this kind of towers, you know, 4G, for example. And you are probably 10,000 people in a residential area using the same tower. This tower has 100 IPs or something, or 200 maybe, right? It, has, it doesn't have 10,000 of them. So if all the devices are connected together at the same time and they want to go over the internet, what the device is doing, what the tower is doing is granting you one address and one port on the fly just for you to get your answer and then it forgets it. And it will give you the same IP address or maybe another one with another combination of address and port to be able to cope with the number of machines you have. So in a corporate network, for example, Mostly, you, you need some few IP addresses. One is most of the time enough, actually, to cover the needs of tens of thousands of users. And the firewall and the proxy and some other machines are dealing with this address translation. They say, OK, this packet is for Bob. This packet is for Alice. This packet is for Jan. And that's fine. It works pretty well. But it's not so easy. A lot of things are not working properly with NAT. And sometimes when you block a NAT IP address, you block a lot of people behind it. The analogy I always like is kind of thinking like a, either a big corporation or maybe like a campus, a college campus where you can send 
a package to, you know, carry at Cisco. And then it's up to Cisco to figure out where Carrie's desk is, right? You don't send it to my desk, you send it to Cisco and Cisco knows where I am. So that Cisco does the network address translation in that Cisco has one big address where everything is sent to. But then when it comes there, the post office within Cisco says, okay, well, I know where Carrie sits. Let me take it to Carrie, right? It's security by obscurity in that somebody knows I work at Cisco, but they don't know what building and floor and desk I sit at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a, this is really what it is. It's a table. It's a routing table. Like it's a, I'm, I'm a con I connected A to B. So when B is going to send back a packet, I have to send it back to A. And I've got to keep the context because at the same time, C talk to me at the same time as A and C want to talk to D. So I have to remember that D talks to C and B talks to A and not, you know, mix it up uh, in, in, in any way. Uh, so yeah, yeah, it's those machines have a heavy, heavy work to do, and there are ways for hackers, for cyber criminals, sorry, potentially to get around those type of uh, of devices and security. All right, so now I got to call you. So you just made the distinction between cybersecurity and hackers, and I know where you're going with that, but I want you to explain why you made that distinction. Yeah, uh, hackers. I mean, it's more of a noble world. Actually, it's it's a very noble word. It's something that defines someone that thinks differently and can do stuff that you do not expect them to do. Uh, it doesn't have to relate specifically to to IT. By the way, you can do hacking in uh, in cooking. You can do hacking. Famously, the hackers love to do lock picking because it's also a brain training stuff like that. Cyber criminal though are really criminals. There are people that are uh, liable uh, in front of a tribunal for things that are forbidden by the law. So this is why we make in the IT space a differentiation between hackers and cyber criminals. Right. It's like life hacks, right? When, you, when someone says, I've got a life hack, that's like, oh, that's a cool thing to explain the life hack. It's because somebody thought about something long enough and realized a unique way to do something that you know, other people hadn't figured out. And it was really clever. And that's not a bad thing. It's a, it's a hack. That's what exactly. Okay, uh, so I don't I, I don't know how true this is, but I think it is because I've actually seen cybersecurity sites with data on this. But I read somewhere a long time ago that a freshly booted Windows PC would be subverted within minutes if connected directly to the public internet. In other words, not behind a router or a, a, a firewall. So basically, there's this notion of what we call internet background radiation of port scanning malware that infects PCs before they even have time to download security updates. So... Can you help the audience understand what is what do I mean when I say this notion of internet background radiation and then how vulnerable are modern Macs and PCs to internet based attacks if not protected by a firewall? Absolutely. So you're right, you're right. I mean, there is an activity over the internet that is constant. It's kind of a humming, you know, like the universe, like the CMB uh, of the universe, like the, the background noise or the background radiation. So the thing that is that every IP address over the internet is scanned a thousand to a, to two thousand times a day at minimum, and I mean like any of them. Wow. If, even my IP address at home is scanned like this, even though I'm not hosting any kind of services that are useful to the public, right? I'm not exposing anything, but nevertheless, it's scanned. So what it means is like there are those cyber criminals, mostly not only but mostly that are scanning the internet to get a map of what is where and what type of device it is and what type of software it's running and so on and so forth. And if they find something that is either new and can be compromised, they compromise it on the fly, or maybe they have registered all the, uh, what we call the banners, the version of every service in the world, say on uh, Apache or whatever, uh, whatever service that is used over the internet, PHP or whatever. And the day they have a vulnerability, they know exactly which target to strike as of the moment that where they have the vulnerability, you can see it like a, they have a, a satellite map of the world 
And if ever there was a war, they knew where to strike first. And it's exactly the same thing. They keep a map that they update constantly. And if they see something that they can compromise or that is useful for later use, they store it. That's why a machine would not be able to survive right away without having a local firewall or a box firewall to protect it uh, from connecting to, directly to the internet. You know? Because I mean, all of our devices, all our computer devices, at some basic level, have multiple services running that are listening for network traffic. And some of those services are still vulnerable because they haven't been patched. And, and so, like you said, these banners, all these devices are silently being very helpful. They want to, they, they advertise, oh yeah, I'm here. And by the way, here's what version I am. So, so if you know, oh, this, this uh, computer over here is running this web server and it's this version of the web server. And I happen to know that's old and unpatched. Then I know that's vulnerable, which is what you're saying. So I could kind of file that away. And when the time comes, that's a, that's ready for me to attack. Yeah, and you know, it's even uh, there's a quote in uh, in cybersecurity that if you've never been visited by number thirty one Jing Rong Street, you don't exist over the internet because this stuff is an AS, so it's a group of IP address that is controlled by a Chinese company, and it's scanning the whole internet for twenty years, constantly. It, they never stopped. I mean, that's amazing feat. Huh? I, actually, kudos to them for being so regular on their on their patterns, and what we see is like. Most of people are buying uh, uh, cheap IoT devices oh, nowadays, yeah. like you know, whatever it is, like could be like cameras, could be routers, could be they install a lot of stuff in their home, you know, to make it smart or, or better or, you know, useful. And the thing is, those devices are extremely cheap because they wouldn't sell otherwise, meaning there are few capacities of, you know, folding attacks or being secured or whatever. And what we do with Chinese mainly because they are the one producing those devices. And I'm not targeting China in any way. It's just a fact, you know, they are producing those devices. They are assembling the, what we call the firmware. So what's running on those machines is assembled as fast as they can. So they don't seek twice and they don't update even anything. They take one version of the code that maybe is 10 years old and they ship it with the device and the device is never updated then, right. or mostly. And this is like for criminals, it, it's a, it's a gold mine. Because you can scan any camera and find some weak CGI program running forever on those. We know it's vulnerable for 20 years already, but nobody did anything about it. And, uh, and sometimes the worst part is you see the same vulnerability coming back. Mm. That, that's the most awesome. So sometimes you know the vulnerability is out. It's patched. Everybody is like, whew, that was a close one. And then 10 years or five years after, you're like, huh? how come we have this stuff again? We corrected it. Yeah, uh, well, how to tell you, you did correct it, but the guy that are doing the firmware, they did not. And they released a new version of this beautiful product that is still vulnerable again. Yeah. And so again, that's where the firewall comes in, because these devices are inside your home. And if you're lucky, none of them have poked holes in the firewall so that they're basically they have a shield between themselves and the Internet. Because otherwise, these things have horrible security and they'd, they'd be picked apart immediately, right? Oh, yeah, 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 that would be teared off. Uh, the thing is, indeed, the firewall will, will probably mitigate most of the thing. Like, if you have the default settings from your uh, operator, it's really likely that uh, your firewall is properly configured. Maybe it's limiting you to not too much, and then you will start poking holes yourself in your firewall. Like, be careful with this. I mean, anything you do in this kind of interface is sensitive. And also think about the fact that if you have at home uh, work environment, like I do now, and you probably do as well, uh, Kerry. The thing is, we need to have a sub network 
we, we do network separation because we can think about firewalls as filtering from the outside to the inside, but you can as well filter from the inside to another part of your inside. It's not a problem. It's actually a good practice. Right. So you, you do silo and you have like your family silo and you have your work silo and you put every computer that is sensitive in one of the silo in one of the uh, zone and every uh, recreational computer or devices in another one so that if someone takes a goal, it's not going to sink the whole ship, you know. Well, the way, and the way I, I tell most people to create those kind of silos is just to use the guest network, to put their IoT devices on the guest network and put all their home computers yeah. on the regular network. No, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it's already uh, pre-shipped with your box. It's super easy to do. Like, say you have a nanny coming home, right, to take care of your kid. You don't give her the, the freaking Wi-Fi password, do you? You never do that, right? Because the thing is, she can come to the, to, next to your house and she has a direct connection to the inside of the house. Right. And she can disable anything. And if not her, maybe her boyfriend that is maybe not well intent, uh, intentioned uh, toward you. So this is a very important thing. Like this guest network, you have it, you have it on the hand. And when you need to hand it, it's, it's easy. You give this uh, password. It's worth not much, actually. It can harm you much. I would not recommend to publish it uh, online, but you know, it's better than giving your own password for your Wi-Fi. And yes, store everything that is untrustable, not trustable in this kind of zone. It's, it's a good safety. For example, all my IoT device at home, uh, kind of like a Sonos or a connected wayscale or a smart home or whatever, they are in a zone where I don't trust them. So if they are ever compromised or if Sonos get compromised itself, it will not bounce back to my network. Because now think about it. If a main provider like Sonos, and I'm not pointing fingers, just right. like they are right. worldwide, you know, or Apple or whomever, if they get compromised and, they up the, and the hackers upload a firmware to your Sonos, then every speaker in the world is a backdoor to your network. And that's, that's, that's scary to me, honestly. It right. will happen. It will. If it did not yet, it will. <laughs> Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's uh, and and even when you think about guests, they may not themselves know that they have been compromised, right? They might be bringing in a device, a laptop or a smartphone that's compromised. They may not be aware of it, but it's like inviting the vampire into the house. You know, <laughs> they, that, now they've got the you've, they've come across the threshold and now they've got full access to everything and they don't even realize how dangerous that is. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this is so true. We haven't had, I mean, in France, I cannot name the, uh, the company, but we, we had in France a company creating like, uh, heaters, you know, uh, for when it's cold in the winter, you turn on the heater. And now we have smart connected heaters, right? So they give you a little appliance that is uh, controlling the heaters from the inside. So you choose a radio network that is aside from your Wi-Fi, whatever. It's another frequency, but this stuff is still connected to the internet, right? And this company got compromised, A to Z, bottom to top, you know, ceiling to K, whatever. Yeah. And yeah. the thing is, the guys were trying uh, to upload a, an updated <laughs> modified firmware to all those little control boxes uh, in people's house. So two things here, you can turn off and on the heating on distance, which is fun, but not very useful. But if you're not into sonar stuff, what you can do is having a, a silent backdoor sleeping in the house of people that you can use anytime you want. Now think about this at scale. We, we had this kind of uh, exercise with Microtik, the router uh, company. I think they were Lad from Latvia or something like this, or Lithuania. What happened is they got compromised and 20,000 routers 
were under the control of a cyber criminal. And when they pushed the button, they could kill a lot of people with this because, you know, when there are so many people being sold out to your door, actually, you cannot open the door. It's called a DDoS and that's a plague. And the thing is, if you do this with a heating system that is used by millions of people, you have millions of IP addresses that are out of the blue knocking at your door and knocking down your website or, or meaningful portion of what you're using as a internet uh, infrastructure. So this is really scary. And we know one day there will be a big one, you know, like one day in San Francisco, there will be a big one. One day over the internet, there will be a big one. And it's very likely going to be a DDoS. Yeah, one of my favorite stories about that is how a casino, which the casinos have some of the best security on the planet, uh, at least physical security. <laughs> and uh, there was a casino that was famously hacked because they had an internet connected temperature sensor in an aquarium. Uh, inside the casino. And it was, of course, on the internet, but it was not secure. And so somebody hacked into the temperature sensor in the uh, aquarium and then got into the rest of the network. Uh, but okay, so let, let me touch on the on the DDoS thing and the, and the botnet. So a lot of times when we have these devices at our home that are compromised, it's it's not to compromise our network because maybe they don't, they don't care about what's in our network, but they want to command a whole bunch of these cheap, insecure devices to do something else and attack something else. And you as the owner of that device, may never even know that was the case. Explain how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So what happens is like, say you have a camera at home, like an IP camera, right? There's a vulnerability supporting to a website, the person takes control of your camera, so what? He sees you naked in the, in the living room. Actually, they don't care. I mean, it's not their goal. They are cyber criminals. I mean, not- uh, Don't flatter yourself. Yeah. So what they do is they, they say at, the, at those devices that they have compromised, pre-compromised, they say at, the, at some point or at the same time, there will be zombies and, and uh, answering to a call. And this uh, Cthulhu call will be like, strike this target. And this target can be a Walmart website, for example, or Best Buy, whatever. And they will, all of a sudden, Best Buy will receive millions of connections. And what happens is Best Buy usually have, I don't know, 100,000 consumer at the same time on, on their website. So they have devised their uh, structure, their IT structure, so that it can take a load of 100,000 people, for example. But all of a sudden, they get 2 or 10 million. And the stuff just, you know, cannot handle it. It, it just cannot. So it's crumbling performance-wise, and it's not answering uh, to anyone anymore. Usually what the cyber criminals are doing at that stage is they say, if you want me to release the control of your website, you have to pay me a ransom. So it's not to be confused with ransomware because there was blackmailing before ransomware as we know it, but it is really definitely a way of blocking some critical infrastructure. You can do it for several reasons. You can do it for ransom. You can do it because you want to, to put in Geopardy some kind of uh, emergency response plan or you know just claim that you're the strongest in the world or whatever. Whatever are the motives, it's, it's really a complicated thing to deal with. And one of my nightmare as a cybersecurity professional is, you know, there, there were those attacks called zero click uh, on phones, right? So you receive a text message, a basic text message, and it would take over the control of your phone. It sounds like science fiction. It was not. You can call Jeff Bezos from, uh, on my behalf and ask him. <laughs> it's some kind of few problem with the divorce of his because of a zero click. And that's extremely impressive, but that's not as rare as we could think. The thing is beautiful in terms of code. It's like the top most beautiful code I've seen for a long, long while in terms of cyber criminality. But the thing is, if you can compromise on distance with zero click or even one click for what we care, 
And the person can compromise the, your phone and replicate to every other of your contacts, how much time do you think you, you stormed the world, right. right? How much time does it take? Like one day, two days? And you get hundreds of millions of devices reporting to you that are ready to compromise or attack anything when you click the button. And this is like we speak hundreds of millions of devices. This is a, a quake that we cannot even begin to, to, to modelize in our heads. It would take down the internet. All right. So look, we've talked about some anecdotal stuff, but at a high level, what do you, what would you say are the biggest threats today from the internet, from network-based attacks? What, what types of attacks are most common? And uh, are those attacks more often automated or targeted? Yeah. So you're right to make the difference in between the two. So there, there are some groups that you would pay a hefty amount of money to try to compromise a target. This is what we call targeted cyber community. So they, they are looking for something extremely specific. Usually they, they work by verticals like banks, medias or healthcare or whatever. And they forge themselves a name and a reputation and a know-how know on how to compromise another banks, for example, casinos. Uh, because those companies often use the same technologies mm -hmm. and they often are structured in the same way and they often offer the same vulnerability uh, to the attacker. So that's why they, they tend to specialize themselves to be efficient and to get more profit. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, there are the people that are, you know, the radiation background noise that you were uh, speaking about, the, the background radiation of the Internet. So those guys are constantly scanning for potential vulnerabilities. And one of the uh, classical activity is what we call ransomware. So ransomware, and, and for the people listening, you, you can you know, shine in society uh, next time you have a dinner in town. Ransomware is not a new attack, okay? And you can put it on the table like this, like, no, I'm sorry, bro. Ransomware is not a new kind of attack, right? And they will be like, ha, yeah, you've not read the news lately. Well, I did, actually. And the thing is, it's not a new kind of attack. It's a new monetization vector, which is entirely different. Actually, they are still using the same kind of attacks they were using back in 10 years ago, 20 years ago, for the most part, but they are industrializing it. And once they compromise you, they make you pay your technical debt at the highest possible price. So the classical vectors for those guys are phishing, like very efficient and more convoluted than it ever was in the past. Sometimes you look at the mail and you're like, really? That's so well done. I could really click it myself being a, sp a cybersecurity specialist, which is scary, you know? So. To avoid this, just to give you a quick tip here, to avoid this, have procedures that are clearly spelled with your employees or your colleagues. Like if I instruct you to do something, make a counter call, physical call, or, or come to my office to double check it's me. You will never be blamed for that. You will be blamed for doing it blindly without thinking twice. The second big part we have is vulnerability. So if, like we told before, like if something is exposing a dangerous service, a vulnerable service over the internet, they will find the vulnerability, breach in, and potentially propagate within the network and do what we call letter move and eventually trigger a ransomware attack and whatever. And um, another one is credential brute force. Uh, famously, very likely one was SolarWind. It's a big, big, big attack that took place uh, last year, I think, early last year. And it was about the, the guest, the FTP password. So it's a file exchange protocol. The guests were what was the password and they could upload things to this uh, FTP server and they're compromising directly tons of other companies that were relying on SolarWind, right? So it's uh, credential brute force is a bit, uh, is tricky, but it's super easy to industrialize. Uh, regarding the vulnerabilities, I forgot to give you an example, but we had last year on the 12th of December, uh, Log4j, 
that was a, an earthquake on, on the internet yeah. because every bank is using Java more or less. Every telecom operator and this industrial uh, uh, partner is using uh, Java more or less. And this was a vast breach that touched tons of thousands of businesses. So you could remotely trigger it. So the day before you were secure, the day after you were at risk. So this kind of stuff are extremely scary. We, we have a scale that is called CVE. It's kind of the scale of, uh, uh, if you compare it to earthquake, uh, it's kind of, what, what's the name already? Uh, and uh, Richter scale, Richter scale. Richter scale. It's a Richter scale of, of cybersecurity. So CVE, when you rank 10, there's nothing, uh, there's nothing worse, you know? So this one ranked 10 out of 10. So people knew who was using Java in which context and could trigger instantly attacks as soon as they knew there was a vulnerability. Another one is obviously plugging, uh, plugging uh, USB devices uh, that mm. accounts for one or two percent directly uh, on the machine. And most of machines cannot resist local attacks. You know, it's really complicated. We call it privilege escalation. It's really, really complicated to avoid that. Uh, and I think we covered most of them. Gotcha. All right, great. So you talked about a little bit of this, but who who are these primary threat actors? Like who are behind the internet-based attacks? What are their goals? Can you kind of break down the pie chart for me, like how that breaks down? And and then also maybe an, another angle, how does that break down versus attacks versus like you and me, home, you know, people at home and their and consumers versus corporations or public utilities? Yeah, let's start with this already. I mean, I think mostly people home are not the target. Or, I mean, from petty theft, yeah, maybe, uh, you know, they tell you that they got a picture of you uh, in an uncomfortable position and they will blackmail you for something. Nine times out of 10, if not 10 out of 10, it's not true. And uh, don't don't fall for that. Not the biggest part of the iceberg by, by a long mile. So usually when they compromise you at home, they use your resources without you knowing, but they rarely uh, directly target you. It could happen, but it's not the, the biggest uh, use case. What we see a lot is those ransomware groups lately, they, they are the ones making the most damages to the economy. A lot and a lot and a lot of them are state-related uh, or state-covered, uh, let's put it like this. So if we take the Russians, they are state-covered, you know, like county. Uh, we all know this group, it's super famous, it had problems lately, but it's still uh, very active. Um, so county uh, does ransomware, they are extremely good at it. And uh, they are targeting uh, companies, you know, uh, sometimes they buy credentials directly to your employees or to your subcontractors, a real plague, this one, because it's real credentials, so it's really hard to fight this one. They go into your company, cipher everything and ask you for a ransom. We know they are very close to the government or actually the government, you know, is closing the eyes on whatever is happening uh, on this uh, on these activities. Uh, so I don't know if they are directly sponsored, but they are right. covered. Let's put it extremely efficient because the Russians are very good at that. They have done that for a long, long while, and they have this mindset for it. They are mathematicians. They are very well educated. So globally, they are you know very good at that. We have also other states uh, like uh, to name it Korea, North Korea. Uh, most of the finances of North Korea is, well, not, maybe not most, but a vast part of the resources of North Korea is coming from hack. Uh, so they are, the cyber community is, uh, institutional. They have an official army internally and they are playing hackers super well, uh, to breach into other places. They are behind attacks uh, on central banks, for example, in uh, Bangladesh, I think, and other places. They have uh, subverted a lot of bitcoins and cryptocurrencies from all over the place. Well, they are trying to finance themselves, uh, but it's really state-sponsored. Uh, China has another approach to this. They have an official army where Russia is telling you, really, 
oh, we didn't know about that. China is doing, really? Well, we don't give a shit. <laughs> Deal with it. It's our army. It's the way we do things. You don't want to do commerce with China anymore? Okay. No, you still do? Okay. Then we have hackers. That we have cyber criminals like this. You know? And they have like half a, a million. And the, the, the figure dates back from close to a decade now. So they're probably like a million in a regular army. Wow. And it's organized like an army. Like literally, they have grades, they graduate, they, they learn, they're on the ropes, the curve, they become like a lieutenant, captain, and whatever. And um, so they are organized for that, and they have an official division for that. So cyber offense is something that they do for more than 10 years, very actively and, uh, and very efficiently. It's more about the mass. I would, I mean, if I, I would put subtlety here, I would say Russian are probably higher end uh, in the way they do it. And China is more on a massive, mm. you know, they're thinking, they're where they do it. They are more on the massive scale. Uh, we have Iran that is active, but not, not like the top uh, three. I cannot tell that US is not doing anything either. Right. The thing is, it's all coming from three-letter agencies, as we all know, but there's no surprise here. At least we, we know that forever. Right. <laughs> and in, the, in between, there are cyber criminal groups, whether they are small or big or larger or super wide, uh, super vast. They usually don't last very long because of their unstable alliances. Mm. And every other decade, United Kingdom provides us with a teenager group that wrecks you know, havoc over the internet. It was Loose Boat back in the days. Uh, lately, it was, uh, what was the name, like uh, Lapsus. And um, I don't know, I, I'm guessing they are bored. Uh, it's a problem for the UK government to deal with, but it's usually, yeah, some few teens having fun over the internet. Those ones were buying credentials as well. And it's really a threat I see coming, actually. Companies are defending themselves more and more, but what do you do against regular credentials that are actually authentic credentials that have been acquired against money most of the time by, by people to connect to your systems? And that is really a tricky one. With all that as background, let's talk a little bit about, let's return to CrowdSec and how your product differs from maybe the, the regular firewall. So tell us a little bit about the CrowdSec firewall, how it works, and specifically, how does how does the crowdsourcing part of it work to improve its protections? Yeah, so given all of this knowledge, and, and, and I'm not the most knowledgeable of the team by far, we thought about a few things. The first thing is hackers or cyber criminals, to be more accurate, they do collaborate together. They do team together, right? And we are not. So basically, we're defending as a corporation, each and every one of us uh, as a unit and not as an army. And they are acting more as an army than by units. So maybe by United, we could be stronger. Just we should try it just to see if it changes the game. Another thing is CrowdSec is some sort of firewall because it sorts IP address, the good from the bad. But instead of basing itself on a static rule set that would say, these are the good ones and these are the bad ones, it says, okay, look at the reputation of this IP address. You know, as seen at the scale of our network, this IP address is very bad. We highly advise you not to host it or not to accept any connection with it. And the way we do it is by asserting this reputation on a large scale. Uh, so everyone in CrowdSec community is running what we call an agent. This agent is, is reading your logs, logs of whatever you feed him with. It can be any kind of logs. And when it sees a pattern of a bad behavior, it will block the connection and the IP address behind it. And it does it uh, in a way, like if you fail your password five times, it's maybe because you don't have your password and you're doing password brute force. Maybe you have like $0.1 transaction on your website, whereas your average cart usually is $30, meaning 
is not really buying something. He's trying to validate credit card numbers. Maybe uh, he's scanning a lot of ports or a lot of URLs on your website. And you have a lot of errors. All of this speaks for problems, right? There is something fishy here. So we block this. It's a behavior really. It's not a signature. It's not a hash. And we block an IP address and not a domain name because there's an infinite number of domain names. You can create one on your own and add whatever number behind it and create infinite numbers of domain names. And as we spoke before, there are only 3.2 billion uh, public IP addresses in IPv4 space. Meaning, and we also deal with IPv6, but it's an entirely other conversation as such. So I was on it, but don't worry, it's covered. So we block IP addresses and we, we create a shortage for the bad guys, for the cyber criminals, because they are using those IP addresses, like we spoke before, for doing DDoS, for doing ransomware, for doing uh, control systems uh, of a vast zombie network. They are using it to do credential brute force. They are using it to auto buy and auto sell stuff and so on, stuff like that. So as soon as we burn IP addresses, we are shrinking the pool of resources they can use to aggress uh, people of goodwill, you know, over the internet. So it's a community that you can see like a sort of IT human system or, or, or internet neighborhood watch, something like this, a ways of firewalls, something that is crowdsourced. And the, the reason behind the crowdsource is that we think that by having a lot of people partaking into the network, we can detect faster, obviously, we can detect on a larger scale than it was ever done before and, and see more different threats. And backing, making it free, we make it also super easy for people to integrate their own scenarios of uh, threats they are looking for, because we don't think we, we have identified them all. So any new scenario is reinforcing the community. And when we see an IP address at one place being aggressive and at a second place being aggressive, at a third place being aggressive, then it's not a behavior anymore. It's a reputation. If I take back the example of this queue at the entrance of uh, uh, the nightclub, if I'm drunk, it's a bad behavior, right? But if, if I'm sober, but the bouncer knows that I'm drunk every other day in every other club in the city, it's a reputation. And I won't make it into the club either. This is exactly what CrowdSec is doing. It's looking at your behavior and it's looking at your reputation uh, uh, when you're an IP address trying to connect. And if you don't, uh, if you don't comply, or if you are, if you have a bad reputation or bad behavior, you're blocked. All right. So two follow-up questions on that. So first of all, how quickly do your agents share their information? Because obviously, internet attacks. If I if I'm an internet attacker and I've got a botnet, I'm going basically going door to door, trying to get in and finding these vulnerabilities or whatever bad behavior I'm I'm up to. It, it's already automated. And it's happening quickly. How quickly can your agents share that information to start blocking that information? And and second, you said you mentioned it was free. So I've got to ask because you said it was free. How does a how do you make money on a free product? All right. So for the first part, uh, the thing is we have some sort of a concept of pressure. Let's put it, let's let's explain it like this. It's a network pressure. So our network, as soon as it sees the attack, says, "Okay, let's put a bit of pressure on this IP address and a bit more and a bit more and a bit more." And if we have enough sightings uh, in a certain amount of time, then the pressure will be so large on this IP address that it will make it to the block list. And the block list is, is broadcasted every five minutes. Your signals are going to CrowdSec close to real time, you know, minus the uh, transportation, but it's close to real time. So if you speak, the fastest we can react is in five minutes. Uh, now, it would be an extremely loud IP address that would be very aggressive and very visible. Now, the threshold to avoid false positive, to avoid broadcasting a false IP address on false sightings 
or to avoid broadcasting some poisoning, like someone tricking me into right. thinking that right. Kerry's address is bad. It's not true. It's, it's a competitor of yours, for example. We also have to account for that and to avoid those, those, those possibilities. So long story short, as soon as an IP address has 150 uh, PSI of pressure on its head, it's making it to the block list and is broadcasted worldwide. So this is what we call the consensus mechanism. And the consensus is literally the whole network agreeing together. Uh, and we need 150 entities to agree together at that stage to block an IP. Obviously, it depends on the size of the network. It's real time. And as for how we make money, the thing is, if you don't partake into the network, you may be interested in having sightings coming from the largest ever CTI network on Earth, right? Because this is what we are. We have tens of thousands of machines reporting the aggression they see, the radiation of the internet, and also targeted aggressions in real time. So that is an extremely valuable information. Now, if you say you're JP Morgan, maybe you're not allowed to use a product for whatever reason, or it's long term on your roadmap, or you cannot deploy something before six months, or you have constraints and you cannot share signals, whatever there is a reason, or just you have money and you prefer to buy them. Well, this is a good reason to go uh, for the professional or enterprise plan and get those signals without sharing anything. The other thing is we have a retention time for uh, this aggression you saw and we provide you with a beautiful console to tell you who aggressed you, why, when, in what context, with what kind of attack. You have seven days for free. If you want one month, it's a professional plan. And if you want one year, which is the usual regulation that most companies have to uh, conform to, uh, you have to pay for an enterprise plan. All right. So I, I've used CrowdSec. Actually, uh, I've got some little VPS systems of some small, you know, Linode and uh, DigitalOcean droplets that I, that I run out there. And, and that's, a, that's where I first ran across CrowdSec, and I use it on that. But for the average user at home, how might they use it? Because a lot of routers come with their own firewall and don't really have a way for you to override that. So I know that I know you can install custom firmware on some of these, but are there any actual production routers today I could buy off the shelf that either use CrowdSec or would allow me to install CrowdSec? So yes a bit and yes a lot very soon. So what, what I mean by that is like right now you could use things like OpenWRT or OpenSense or PFSense that are very uh, widely used in this Tinkerer community. But now if you're not an admin and you don't know much about Linux and so on, you may be lost in this and uh, it's a bit tricky for you to use. I would highly advise you, nevertheless, to be educating yourself about cybersecurity and running your, uh, your own Wi-Fi network, running your own firewalls for the sake of protecting your home and your family. But this is not the debate today. So if you want something off the shelf, we don't directly have that yet. Now, the good news is we have a lot of traction with the telecom operators the one that are providing you the box at home. And it's really likely that CrowdSec will be embedded soon mm. into those boxes uh, directly at the native level, like the firewall you have in your machine already that is sitting there and is configured by Microsoft or, or Apple or whomever, right? So this, is, this will be sitting into your IAD soon mm. uh, in your box, and uh, it will do the job transparently for you. You would not even know about it. And the cool thing is for the operator, it makes a lot of sense because they have a lot of regulation that they have to comply with, like for IPTV, for example, like preventing you from going on, on uh, pirated IPTV stuff. It's not that we are after it, but they're asking it a lot lately mm. because the regulations are really tighter on that. There is a real crackdown. Um, also, they don't want your, your machine at home to serve in a botnet, in a zombie network like we described before. 
So it's in their own uh, interest not to waste resources carrying packets that are not really legitimate. Uh, and they also want to have a view of what's happening over the network, if they get attacked, where from, how, if their uh, users are changing behavior, it's maybe not their users that are changing behavior, it's maybe because they are compromised. Like if your granny right. has a, a something and she misclick on the link and her browser is, is uh, completely uh, uh, compromised and controlled by a cyber criminal, Granny can do anything about it, and she doesn't even know about it in the first place. That doesn't mean we cannot protect her anyway. All right. All right. Last question before we go, and that is, just generally speaking, where do you see things going? Are things getting better or getting worse? And do you have any quick tips besides the ones we've already talked about that you might recommend that people do to help protect their home networks? Sure. So regarding where we're heading, I mean, we rely more and more over the internet constantly at home, at work, for everything. Like, we cannot be disconnected anymore. We are digital animals, period. You know, mm -hmm. Darwinism means it so that if you want to be uh, competitive in your life and what you do and have fun and so on, you have to be digital. So uh, I'm not seeing this shrink anytime soon. So it means that the, the surface of exposure of the businesses and the people is going to expand constantly and tremendously over the next centuries. So we have to deal with those pests. We have to deal with those hackers. What we can do is close the door to 95, 98% of them already, you know, like take out all the radiation noise and all the uh, groups that are averagely skilled. Now, if you tell me, will we deal one day with those snipers that can make a headshot uh, 3000 uh, meters away? No, it's, it's not something I can even begin to think doable, you know, but it's not the main problem because those guys are very, very, very few. They are active for a very short time span because they make a lot of money and they don't want to be caught one day by the FBI, who is very active in this field. So they usually disappear quickly and they are very few. So they are not a plague as such. They are a big problem, but for very large corporations that can deal with them. So this is where I'm seeing the thing heading. Besides, if you saw this Player One movie, I mean, it's uh, Ready Player One, it wouldn't be the first time that we see the future uh, through the eyes of Spielberg. And I think he's extremely accurate in this. I don't know if the future is that grim, but what I know for sure is we will we, connect it constantly. And we need to protect this as an asset for our health, for our home, for our work, for everything. So it's critical. There's a lot of people thinking about it. Uh, I'm just one of many uh, trying to solve the problem. We do it in a different way by using the crowd. I don't know if we will be right or wrong in the end, but we can, we can help. And a lot of people are trying to help. And I'm sorry because I forgot the second part of the question. Yeah. What are your top tips when someone, your, your family or a neighbor says, hey, what do I, how do I protect my network? What do you tell them? Yeah, so sure. The first thing to do, like, is isolate, like I told, we told before, like having two different networks, like guest network, uh, home network, work network, you know, you can have a Wi-Fi uh, uh, for a hundred bucks uh, running at your home and doing extremely good job, probably better than your router uh, and protecting you. So really think about it. It's not a big investment and you sh it, it could protect you from really big problems. The other thing is like, we'll never tell it enough. Passwords are key people and you have to rotate them and you have to learn them and you have to use a password wallet. A password wallet will help you have random passwords, stuff that are impossible to guess, right? And, and store them. So now we all know it's not practical constantly and some password you need to, to remember. So use phrases, right? You will remember a phrase, but you will not remember a password, most of the time, a complicated password. So do something like, uh, I love Rolling Stones, right? That's fine. 
I mean, come on, uh, find something of your own, obviously. But that's fine. You will never forget that one. Never, ever. And it's super complicated to guess for a computer. It's, it's close to impossible. So take three words of stuff you like, assemble them, put, I don't know, underscore, exclamation mark, or, or dash in between them, and you have a strong password, for God's sake, that nobody will ever guess and that you will never forget, <laughs> which is also important, right? Uh, and don't worry about forgetting your password because 9, 10 out of 10, you can recover them. Right. If you can use Google Authenticator or whatever two factor authentication, wherever you can, because it means that you, for a cyber criminal, they have to have your password and also your phone, which is close to impossible at the right. same time. Right. Because you would know about it. So really uh, activate 2FA wherever you can. You could think it's a it's an asshole. It's a problem. It's it's a burden, but it's not. It's really made to protect you. And most of stuff are smart enough not to ask if the context make it so that it's obviously you. Right. Also, never, ever, ever, ever trust the sender of an email, right? Because I can send you tomorrow an email from neil at strong at moon.com. <laughs> and it's not Neil. Spoiler alert, right? It's me. So uh, the, the, the protocol make it so that they don't have to check who is sending. So it's really just a declaration. So if I tell you I'm a Queen Elizabeth II, and you trust that I'm Queen Elizabeth II, you are the one in trouble. I'm not. Uh, okay, uh, so, so that's really important. And if something is fishy, looks wrong, or there's a sense of urgency in the message, like do this fast, otherwise, like I've got compromising picture of you naked in the bath, whatever, uh, send me a Bitcoin or I will uh, broadcast it. Well, first of all, you're not that bad looking. If they broadcast you, you're just one uh, among a billion. Welcome to the show. Uh, second thing is, spoiler alert, they don't have a picture of you naked right. in, in bathtub because probably you don't have a camera in the bathtub, right? And so this is just senseless scam alert. Don't do this. And in a corporate environment, if someone is asking you to do this super quickly because I'm lost in the middle of somewhere or I have to sign a contract, call. Even if he's your boss, call and double check. It costs nothing. You will be caught at fault, fault not doing it. You will never be blamed for doing it, right? So double check whatever makes no sense or or seems like an urgency that is not one, or someone contacting you through a channel that they usually don't use, for example. Philippe, that was great advice. Thanks so much for talking to us and explaining firewalls to us. That was my pleasure, Kerry. And if they don't protect from dragons, maybe they will protect from hackers. Oh. <laughs> Thanks again. All right. Thanks again to Philippe for coming on the show. That was a very interesting topic, and I think it's always good to circle back and go to the basics. And we needed an update on how networking actually works. I think it was good to kind of talk through all that stuff. Now, I wanted to circle back to a couple things real quick. First of all, we talked about poking a hole in your firewall, and it's kind of a funny expression, but it really means kind of pretty much what it sounds like. So again, a firewall really is like a one-way valve or a one-way door. If you make a request from inside the network, one of your devices, your computers, your smart devices, your smartphone or whatever, makes a request out to the internet, the firewall lets that through and then also lets the response associated with that request come back unmolested. However, if something out of the internet tries to make a unsolicited request to something inside your network or to your network, it will say no. I mean, that's something that actually probably happens a lot, because but you never know about it because your firewall turns them away. It really is like the bouncer at the nightclub. Now, there are situations, and this isn't terribly common, but there are situations, and gaming is maybe one of the more common ones, where you might want some 
thing in your network, some device, maybe your game console or your PC, if you're doing some network gaming kind of thing, if you want it to be able to receive incoming requests from certain other devices. And so what you would do is you would log into your router as an administrator, you'd log in and you'd go to the special page where you can set up port forwarding, which is a place where you can say, okay, if I get a request on this port at my public IP address, I want you to let that through. If it's of a certain type of request, I want you to let that through. And when you do let that through, I want you to forward it to this device. Because out on the internet, you have just one global address. You've got one internet address for everything inside your home network. So whoever's contacting you from outside won't necessarily know what your private internal IP address is that it's trying to reach, the device is trying to get to. So that's where you forward that port that you opened up on your firewall to the device that needs to receive that request from outside. That is what you would actually do if you wanted to, quote unquote, poke a hole in your firewall. Now, most people never need to do this. And in fact, most people should not be doing this. We don't want any chinks in the armor. Uh, we don't want anybody sniping through that hole to try to get inside our network and get up to some mischief. Now, he also talked about subnets, or he also called them silos. And the most simple version of this really is, again, your guest network versus your regular network. And that is a partition within your home network that says, okay, all these devices over here can talk to each other and talk to the internet, but they can't talk to the, your other devices on your home, rec home network over there. And this is and how they implement this might be different depending on different routers, but it's basically a silo or a, potentially a subnet, which is a very specific way of doing this. Um, but it segregates your home network. And you really should be using this uh, for a couple things. First of all, you should absolutely, anytime you have a guest over, they should be using your guest network because they may have compromised devices. They might not even know that their devices are compromised. But if they just need to get to the internet, fine, put them on the guest network and they will have access to the internet. But their devices, crucially, will not be able to talk to any other devices on your regular home network. Now, you also, if possible, want to put your IoT or your Internet of Things devices on your guest network as well. These are cheap products, relatively speaking. They don't spend a lot of money on security. A lot of them have horrible security. A lot of them have vulnerabilities that will never get patched. And so you really want to keep those kind of vulnerable, insecure devices off on their own and in their own corral, in their own silo, in their own sandbox. And the best way to do that is just to put them on your guest network. Almost every modern Wi-Fi router today has the ability to turn on a guest network. It's not on by default usually, so you'll have to log into your router to set this up, but then you absolutely should be putting as many of your Internet of Things devices on there as possible. And I qualify that because some devices, there will be some Internet of Things devices, perhaps like maybe a a Roku device or a streaming device where you might need to have your smartphone control it directly. And to do that, they have to be on the same network usually, not always, but usually. So if it's something that you kind of constantly need to be interacting with from an iPad or an iPhone or, or, or what, or your computer, or your laptop, uh, then you're probably unfortunately going to want to keep it all on the same network, which means keeping it on your main network. But a lot of times you only need to do this just to set it up in the first place. So in that case, you take your smartphone or, you know, whatever it is you need to set up that IOT device and temporarily put it on the guest network. So they're on the same network, get it all set up, get it working, and then take that, uh, your device, uh, your smartphone, your laptop or whatever, and then put it back on your regular network. So anyway, I wanted to expand on a couple of those things we talked about. 
Now, there's something else I wanted to bring up, too, uh, and that is that quote always attributed to Bill Gates. And he supposedly, back in the early 80s at some conference or something, said that 640K of RAM ought to be enough for anybody. Now, he denies that he said this, and I actually went looking because I was curious, and there really is no solid attribution of that quote to him. So maybe he said it, maybe he didn't. Honestly, when he said it, he probably didn't mean like for all time. Like I'm sure he wasn't meaning that 640K of RAM will always be enough for any computer till the end of time. So anyway, in his defense, that's my guess of what he meant if he did say it. And it's not altogether sure that he did say that. And likewise, by the way, uh, James Cagney apparently never said you dirty rat ever. Never put those three words right next to each other. And all the movies he did, even though that is always attributed to him. Like, that's the most famous quote when someone talks about James Cagney. They'll whip out, you dirty rat. Apparently he never said that. Just like Humphrey Bogart never said, play it again, Sam, in Casablanca. It's not there. Ilsa, at one point, th- says, play it, Sam. Uh, there are things close to that, but Humphrey Bogart never said, play it again, Sam. All right, one more thing before we go on networking. Sometimes you actually might want a reverse firewall. And by that, I mean, you might want to block calls going out. Not all, but some. And maybe you've got an app that you're going to install that you're afraid is going to be uploading a lot of telemetry, for example. In other words, a lot of personally identifiable information that you don't want it to do, yet you still want to use it. So there used to be an app on Mac called Little Snitch that was like this. Uh, I think it's still around. But there's another one called Lulu that's free from a guy named Patrick Wardle, who I've had on the show before. Great guy. Mac security researcher who creates these really cool Mac tools. And he's got a website called objectivec.org. That's objective-see.org with some great free tools there. Lulu is one of them. Lulu is a reverse firewall. And if you install it, you will quickly see that as soon as you install a new app, it immediately tries to phone home and Lulu will pop up and say, hey, this app is trying to talk. Do you want to let it happen? And you can say yes, temporarily or yes, always or no. Now, Again, they're probably looking for updates, so you probably want to let that happen. So anyway, it's more of interesting if you want to kind of keep tabs on what your apps are doing and see that apps really are phoning home all the time. Again, you know, often probably just looking for updates, but, you know, maybe they are sending personal information about you on a periodic basis as well. And give CrowdSec a try. I Again, it, it doesn't really currently work on most home routers. Like you're not going to go buy yourself uh, a Netgear router, bring it home and then load it up with CrowdSec. It's got its own software on there and you're probably not going to be able to customize it in that way. Hopefully that will change actually. Hopefully there will be ways to do this, but if you want to set up your own router, you can do that with like a mini, a mini PC of some sort and load on PF sense. That's a great tool uh, that would allow you to do your own CrowdSec. But where I used it, where I found it in the first place is I have these little VPS these little cloud instances of Linux machines, these little VM, these little tiny underpowered Linux boxes, underpowered only because I'm not paying a lot of money for them because they don't need to do much. Linux instances that live out in the cloud and I want them to be protected from this internet background radiation. So you install CrowdSec, which will kind of monitor things, but then you have to actually install some bouncers as well. And believe it or not, that's what they're called. So this whole analogy that Philippe uh, brought out about nightclubs is not just any old you know, off the cuff analogy, that's really the terminology that the tool uses. So you install bouncers to, you know, kind of actively block these things, but it's all free. It's all open source. You, I've got links in the show notes. You can actually go look at the code if you want to, but if you ever wanted to host a little Linux box up in the cloud, this is a great solution to help keep it safe. All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week. We've got another new show for you next week. And of course, several interviews in the pipeline. If you haven't already subscribe, 
If you are willing, I would love to get some nice five-star reviews wherever your podcast app lets you put those. And if you're new to the program, uh, definitely check out firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. I've got a lot of great resources there, including the book, the blog, the newsletter, and a long list of other privacy and security sites that you might find interesting. And if you want to support my efforts, you can find information about that there as well. Okay, everybody, that'll do it for this week. Until next week, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.